coming straight from the cockpit. It's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void and fuck am I bored. It's been a whole lot of sitting around on my ass. I've been grounded now for, I want to say just a little over a month since I've flown a plane, which is kind of why I hate my new next guest just a little bit because he's not grounded. Uh, He's been able to get in the air. So uh, let's just go. Uh, Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Hey, I'm uh, Joey Marco. I'm a pilot in the Navy. Nice. Nice. A Navy pilot. So what, like you fly... Well, obviously, uh, yeah, I'm we'll, currently a student in uh, BFA 106 flying the F-18 Super Hornet. Oh, dude, that's like a fucking wet dream for like <laughs> <laughs> for all pilots out there. That is like, I mean, really, there's what a, a handful of aircraft that have more power than that thing. Um, well, I'd say as far as uh, as far as fighter jets go, it's uh, considered underpowered. <laughs> really? But, uh, yeah. Oh, holy shit. All right. So. You said you're uh, you're a pilot in the Navy. How long have you been in the Navy for? Um, I've been in the Navy for a little over five years. I was in the Air Force for four years, uh, and then switched over. So, enlisted okay. officer. Now, what was the what was the reason for switching uh, switching teams, so to speak? To fly, really. Um, I flew on the civilian side um, when I, when I was in college. I ended up. It's a long story, but I ended up joining the Air Force as a linguist, and. Uh, Air Force is a great place to be for Intel. Okay. Uh, but I always intended on applying to OCS in the Navy. And uh, so I got picked up to be a pilot and I switched over and I commissioned and here I am. Nice. Now, um, a linguist, explain that. Yep. Uh, so I was an Arabic linguist, Iraqi specifically. Uh, so I went to the Defense Language Institute and uh, spent a couple of years in very intensive training learning Arabic. And then uh, ended up working in intelligence. So doing you speak math. Arabic? I do, yeah, multiple dialects. Holy shit. Dude, uh, see, now you and I have actually spoken before. We had a really bad connection, so this is kind of take two for the podcast. But I had no fucking clue. You speak Arabic. Wow. Yep. <laughs> How, now, where are you from originally? I'm from Seattle. So from Seattle, where did the desire to learn to speak Arabic, multiple dialects of Arabic come in? Uh, so really I did not choose at all. Um, I always liked language. I took three years at AP Japanese in high school and I went over there each year, did like homestay and I traveled around and I just really liked language. And, uh, I knew that if there was anything I was going to be doing other than flying for the rest of my life, it would probably be working in intelligence as a linguist. And, uh, at the time, uh, pilot boards weren't really happening when I was graduating college, uh, because of the economy, you know, it was like 2010, 2011. And so I decided I would bide my time and, you know, get to go to DLI, the Defense Language Institute, and, uh, and then, you know, basically later apply to be a pilot. And um, so, yeah, that's what I did. And wow. I absolutely loved it. That's, I mean, that's, a, I mean, obviously um, the U.S. military and all that, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a stretch to go into something like Arabic, but just for some average kid that grew up in Seattle, Arabic is not the first language you would think to pick up. So that's super <laughs> cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I didn't choose. Um, I went to, I got to DLI and they told me, hey, you're going to learn Iraqi. And I was like, okay. Fucking hell. <laughs> Now, so you were kind of just kind of killing time to try and uh, get in and start flying, which you're doing now. Uh, so you said three years in the Navy? 
Um, no, like, uh, yeah, about four and a half, almost five now. Okay. Okay. Now how long have you been, uh, working with the F-18s? So I just got to the F-18 this last summer. Um, I, you know, I spent a few years going through all the, the training for the military. And then once I got my wings, they asked me to stay in Meridian as an instructor flying the T-45. Uh, so I instructed in that jet for about a year. And then I finally checked into my squadron here. Uh, in Virginia Beach, flying the F-18 Super Hornet. Okay, so uh, put it in in terms uh, skydivers can understand. Where are you in your career with F-18s if you were, say, a jumper? Like, how far along in your career are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm essentially a 100-jump wonder in the F-18. <laughs> oh, fucking <laughs> yeah, Jesus. So really, it's a, it's a crapshoot whether or not you're going to survive it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd like to think that I have better chances than that, but yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. In general. Just kind of getting started uh, right now. I'm in a strike phase, so we're like learning how to, you know, deploy or employ weapons, dropping bombs, all that fun stuff. Doing okay. Close air support. Uh, but yeah, I'm just a student right now. Okay. Now I'm going to stretch my knowledge on the F-18, which is very, very little. Uh, F-18. There's two different types of in regard to seating. There's single, and then there's the tandem. Is that not correct? Yes. So the uh, the E model, the Echo, is a single seat Super Hornet. And then the F is a two-seat Super Hornet. And then you have the Growler, the G model, which is an EA-18. Um, and they do electronic attack, and they're also a two-seat. Okay, so now with the two-seat, um, and I apologize for all the skydivers that just want to talk about jumping, but fuck you, I want to hear about F-18s. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Um, with, uh, with the two-seater, if it's not the one that's doing the electronic one, what's the guy in the backseat doing? So that's a, uh, a Wizzo. So... The single-seat and two-seat squadrons really do the same thing as far as um, tasks. But just have a uh, in the two-seat squadron, you have the back seat that can really help out, and you can shed a lot of the load. So they can be doing something like uh, operating the FLIR, setting up the systems while the pilot is busy doing his other tasks. Okay, so it's it's not so much one guy has a set uh, list of things he's supposed to do, and the other guy's just flying the plane. You guys are sharing duties. Um, it's a little bit of both. There are, you know, there are specific duties that the Wizzo uh, will handle in a two-seat uh, jet. Um, so yeah, it, it's pretty delineated on on you know what he does. But in general, yeah, um, you guys are a crew and you're working together to uh, you know accomplish the mission. Okay. And to operate the systems in the jet. Okay. So very the pilot can, you know, the pilot could do everything, um, but that's not the point of having the Wizzo. Sure. Um, so it can. Yeah, it can be pretty awesome. I've done, a, you know, I've done a few flights where I have an instructor. I'm flying a two seater, and I have an instructor in the back, and you know, they start doing some stuff, and you're like, oh wow, this is kind of nice, because <laughs> we always train to a single seat mentality as a pilot until we know we're going to a two seat squadron. So I've always done everything, and the instructor, if I, if I have an instructor in the jet, he kind of sits and watches, mm. and you know, tells maybe corrects me or tells me what to do um, or how to do something better, but he's not actually or she uh, isn't actually doing, you know, the, the stuff. So gotcha. um, it's pretty cool. You get a little taste of, you know, that world before you decide or before they decide whether you're going single seat or two seat. Oh, fair enough. Now, can uh, if the, the guy sitting up front is incapacitated for any reason, can the Wizzo fly it from the back? No, they can't. Um, there's no stick there. Yeah, there's no stick. Um, but there is like they can do they can activate like pilot relief mode. So it is possible for them to have the jet hold an altitude 
Um, but that's it. They can't really, they can't mess with the throttle and they can't control the jet. So, wow, really? So it's a very, very limited, like autopilot. They push a button and it at least keeps altitude. Yeah. So, yeah. so all they can do is what uh, needs to be done or eject. Essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Now, uh, you said you started this just a little while back. Um, I was signed off to fly a fucking twin otter uh, over a long weekend. I'm assuming an mm -hmm. F-18 takes a little bit more time. So what's what's the timeline for something like that? If if you see you're just an average student, mm -hmm. the timeline for for basically what, like, getting signed off and you're now a, a signed off Hornet pilot in the fleet. Okay, so um, well, as far as once you check into the F-18, uh, you've already been flying jets and or you know military aircraft for a few years sure and when you get to the f-18 um the R frs which is the squadron the fleet replacement squadron it, it's about a year-long program all right all right i mean that seems like a reasonable amount of time especially because like you said you're not a newbie flying jets by then but yeah so at that point the jet itself is it's really easy to fly so you're already used to flying a jet, right, in the, in the T-45. So you're kind of just hopping into something that's bigger and badder. And um, the, the big thing is just learning the tactics and learning all the systems and everything. Um, it's not – you're not necessarily learning how to fly the aircraft because, like I said, you're already, you're already a pilot. You already know how to fly. And the jet itself is actually really easy to fly. Awesome. Awesome. Now – but there's uh, the couple of the dramatic differences that jump into my mind uh, is going to be the carrier. I mean, yeah. whew, have you done that? Uh, I have. In the, not in the F-18 yet. That is at the end of the syllabus that I'm in right now. But I've done it tw um, twice in the T-45. So I have a total of uh, about like 26 landings on a carrier in the T-45. Jesus. All right. So the – I, I mean, I know what it's like just landing in a stiff crosswind in a new airplane <laughs> or in a new environment or something like this. But you're talking about landing basically a high-performance jet on a, a very, very short runway that's pitching and rolling and doesn't want you to land there. That's got to yeah. be fucking intense. <laughs> it definitely is. Um, I remember the, the first time doing it, you know, it was absolutely terrifying just rolling out behind the boat and thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Um, but then you do it. And uh, I remember, you know, taking my first trap and just being like, holy shit, I am in the right job. This is really cool. And then even more so after getting catapulted off the uh, front of the boat the first time, Man. the cash shot, really aggressive and just so much fun. Um, just such a rush. There's, there's nothing that compares to it. Uh, so do, do you know, point, do you know offhand, what are the G forces you pull on a cat shot? Um, I don't really know. I mean, it's, it's in, you know, like the X axis. So you don't, you don't feel it like you would pulling G's sure. in, um, you know, in a turn. Cause that's, you know, in the Z axis. So it's down through your head. Um, this is more in the pushing your chest back into the seat. So I don't really know. Um, I can tell you for the, um, for the T45, it was like zero to like 130 miles an hour and like under just under two seconds. <laughs> But the F-18, it can be way faster depending on how much you weigh. Yeah. Uh, 
and stuff, but I don't know all the specifics about the F-18 yet. So now when you're doing the, the uh, a lot of the training, obviously they've got to know whether or not you can physically handle the rigors of what you're getting ready to go through. And I like most um, pilots that are you know, obviously a different type of flying that have never really been put in that position. I've never done any aerobatic flying or anything like that. So I really mm-hmm. don't know how I would handle really heavy Gs. What do they do to you guys to make sure you're not just going to black out? <laughs> So they kind of teach you, they try to teach you good habits from the beginning and the T6, which is the, uh, the turboprop that you start out in. And, and then if you go jets, they put you into the centrifuge, um, out in Texas. And that's where you fly what's called the F-18 profile. And, um, they teach you, they further teach you the AGSM, the anti-G straining maneuver. And, uh, so you have that, you have that tool and, um, that's, so when you're pulling G's, uh, you can use that to stay conscious. Um, it's a special kind of straining and breathing technique that helps keep the blood in your head. That's like the, the aggravated O face from what I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. You're squeezing everything from like the belly button down and then you're, you have to kind of relax everything from the belly button up and, um, you use a specific quick exchange of air to, um, and you use your glottis to kind of block it off and it basically keeps the pressure high in your thoracic cavity and it keeps your heart in kind of a normal shape so it can pump blood because when you're uh when you're pulling g's your heart gets stretched out mm. and it can't really pump blood through your uh through your body so this helps keep that pressure high and then you do a quick exchange of um quick breath exchange and it basically shoots oxygenated blood back into your brain and kind of keeps it there wow um so you don't out do when you and, uh, yeah you know, you'll see it you know your eyesight will go before anything else so if you start feeling that you know your eyesight is going away you can start getting on the strain a little more and that happens what around i want to say three or four g's you start to really feel the effects um yeah i'd say so typically i mean it's going to depend day-to-day basis based on your you know your hydration and and also just your body composition your your height um like just there's it, it varies um based on a lot of things but in general yeah um i'd say the average person like if i were to take someone up who you know wasn't used to g's um they would they would probably start seeing deficits around three g's or so wow um, now you just did this uh, not that long ago because you're relatively new in the in the program um when you were in texas did you see anybody that wasn't able to get through that phase because i'd imagine there's some people that just can't handle g's there, um, I don't know anyone who straight up didn't make it through. I know people that had to go for multiple rides though, cause they lose consciousness. They G lock their first time. Uh, cause obviously the goal is to never G lock. Right. Uh, so I've seen guys take multiple tries or have to go back a second time for sure. Wow. Um, I, I think, I don't think I know anybody who straight up didn't make it through. Um, so it's, you do like, there's different profiles and you, you'll do like, six G's for 30 seconds and like seven and a half G's for 15 seconds. And you do like a seven and a half G's while looking having your body twisted around, looking at your six o'clock. That's a really hard one. Um, yeah, I can imagine <laughs> it's, pain- it's painful in the centrifuge. It's, it's a lot, a lot shittier than in the jet. You, so know, you can do it in the centrifuge. 
experience as you can do it in the gym. I've watched the. There's obviously you can hop online and see videos of guys doing this type of training, and and it's uh, it's quite entertaining to watch them. But every time I watch, as soon as somebody, as you use the term G locks, their head just slams into their fucking chest, and I'm always like, oh my god, they're gonna rip this guy's head off. <laughs> yeah, you you literally it feels like you have an elephant sitting on your chest. You can't breathe. It's it's really it's just not comfortable. <laughs> wow. Wow. All right. So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to try and get off the little fanboy attitude I've got going with the, the F-18 stuff and back it off. Uh, now we know how extreme what you're training to do is what made you decide that was something you wanted to do in the first place. Where did, uh, um, anything not just extreme, but, uh, aviation based come into play in your life? Uh, man, my whole life, I, I knew I wanted to uh, fly jets in the Navy. Um, and in general, always wanted to be a pilot. I just remember ever since I was really little going on trips and stuff and, you know, to visit family and always really just looking forward to the plane ride more than anything. Hmm. And um, growing up in Seattle, right underneath the uh, the uh, flight path for you know, all the aircraft at SeaTac, sure. I was always just watching airplanes and, um, you know, grew up going to Seafair watching the F-18s, you know, the Blue Angels and all that. So it was just something that's always been uh, in the back of my head. Now, how did and, you uh, how did you step into it? I mean, what was your first experience with uh, flight training? Um, in, so I, I went for one of those discovery flights when I was 14. Okay. Um, so that was my first time flying an airplane. But I, um, I kind of held off until I was 18. I went to college down at Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach, Florida. Okay. And uh, when I started flying, working on my ratings, so... I got, um, you know, didn't just up to my commercial instrument rating. I uh, kind of ran out of money. I was broke. I was putting myself through college. I paid for it 100. percent So wow. I just didn't didn't have the money to kind of continue on. And I was intending on flying in the military. So I was like, screw it. I'll have them pay for it. That's a good so, idea for sure. Now, <laughs> so you went down and you're paying for college out of pocket. So uh, that begs the question: How the fuck did you afford your first skydive? And by the way, we're on a pi- uh, uh, skydiving podcast, and we haven't mentioned it once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, was just, I was about to say, don't worry, everybody. Like I do skydive as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those listening, Joey is a skydiver. <laughs> so I actually, on my 20th birthday, when I was in, in college down there, me and a bunch of my fraternity brothers went uh, skydiving together. Um, and did it like a tandem and I was like, okay, this is awesome, obviously. And I, so yeah, I was broke as hell in college. Uh, so that was all I did, um, in DeLand. So DeLand is right next to Daytona beach. So sure. I had a lot of friends that were jumping out there and I always wanted to do it, but I knew I couldn't at the time. Fast forward a few years, I was in the air force and I was stationed in Georgia and I got picked, I was flying airplanes, you know, renting aircraft on the weekend. I got picked up to be a pilot in the Navy. And I'm like, well, I'm going to need a new hobby. You know, since I'm going to get paid to fly, I'm no longer going to pay to fly. So I took about a week of leave. I went down to DeLand and I did my AFF and uh, never looked back. I've been jumping like every weekend since. Nice. Nice. Now, when you started doing that, though, you're in the military. So did you have to sneak off and not tell anybody or did you actually tell them, hey, I'm going to go fuck off and jump out of airplanes? No, so I, I told them. Um, I just did like the, went through the process of the uh, high risk activity waiver, uh, filled out that form. Basically, said these are the risks, and I acknowledge them, and this is how I mitigate those risks. And I've never had an issue with any of my commands um, with with skydiving, which is awesome. And, yeah, and there's military guys all over, you know, all over the U- U.S. who skydive and don't have issues. So if you go through the proper channels, it's really not a big deal. 
Well, I suppose maybe, uh, I mean, skydiving, especially over the last 20 or so years, has become relatively mainstream. And obviously, being attached to the military, um, that's something that's been in the military for a very, very, very long time is jumping out of airplanes. Um, It's just funny because I know the military is very much dot your I's and cross your T's and you don't do anything dangerous unless it's for us type of thing. (laughs) So I didn't know if they would be giving you a hard time because obviously, especially as a pilot, you can't twist an ankle. You can't break a leg. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I, th- I think in the pilot community, people really understand that. I, I just explained that skydiving is a lot like flying and that it is inherently very risky, but those risks are mitigated very well. Hmm. You know, like the second I started telling people about an AAD and an RSL and, you know, a MARD and our, you know, exit orders and, you know, little things like that. They realize that they realize that there's a lot more that goes into it, and we actually safety is a huge priority in skydiving. Right after you know looking cool, sure, and, sure. Well, and, and so. it's funny because I would say that uh, um, the the safety aspect of skydiving is probably the only thing that skydivers generally have in common with the military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so um, you went down and you made your first jump into land but you start you go through aff in georgia um but you're an instructor oh, now, no, correct? I, live in, I live in georgia but i i would drive down to the land oh okay so you were doing it all into land all right well then this begs the even bigger question is because you were in the military how the fuck do you go down to one of the biggest drop zones not just in the country but in the world and not get in shitloads of trouble on the ground I honestly like I feel like Deland is one of the most tame DZs I've been to <laughs> because like they I don't know it's one of those it's one of those DZs where at the end of the day everyone goes home. Okay. You know? Like for example, if if I was going to get in trouble it would be at like West Tennessee skydiving and Mike Mullins's place where I just spent the last 3 years cuz we everyone would show up Friday and we'd stay there and sleep there until Sunday. It was one of those type of It DZs. was a camp out drop zone. Yeah, exactly. Um and that's where, I mean, I would definitely see partying and stuff, but in general, like I'm, I don't know, I, I keep it pretty tame, you know, I'll, I'll drink and stuff, but, um, that's, that's about it. Well, now- <laughs> and I always keep skydiving and my job at the, you know, uh, I, I always, I don't know, like, I, I guess I'm there for, for skydiving, sure, really. sure. Uh, socializing obviously, but I, I love to skydive. And so I would love to be able to get up in the morning and, and jump, especially when I'm at like boogies and camps and stuff like that. I tend to keep it, keep it pretty tame. <laughs> nice. Now, well, now what was your progression? Cause uh, I mean, obviously you had to have been a really busy guy. Cause you're talking about uh, um, being relatively new in the Navy, getting picked up to fly, which means that you're probably being smashed with data and new information all the fucking time. And you're learning how to skydive and eventually become an instructor. How the, how does that work? Because most of the skydivers I know, it's it's one or the other. It's real life or skydiving. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, so basically, I joined the Navy with maybe 35, 40 skydives. And then now I have about 1,400 skydives. Um, and so I kept it. I was jumping every weekend, mm. you know, and – what I did was I really just went hard Monday through Friday at work. Um, even if I wasn't scheduled or I felt like I had nothing to study, I always made sure I studied something mm. and, uh, at least, you know, good, like five hours, six hours. I'd try to put in each day to, to study something. 
whether it be to work ahead or really just hone what I already know, because my biggest fear was being kind of caught with my pants down in a brief or in a flight where I didn't know something and I wouldn't ever want them to attribute it to the fact that I spend my weekends at the drop zone. Sure. Uh, Cause you know, everyone knew that I, I jumped all the instructors would know. And so, yeah, it, if I ever messed up, they could easily be like, well, maybe you should focus more on your job. Right. Um, and I wouldn't, I didn't want them to think that I wasn't focusing on it. Um, but one thing that I learned very well when I was at the defense language Institute, when I was enlisted, um, because that is a very, very, very rigorous course, mm. uh, academically. Um, and one thing I learned is that no matter like how busy you are or how, you know, swamped you are, it's really important to have a day where you literally just put down everything and you have a hobby or something that you do where you can kind of just let go of everything sure. and forget everything. And nothing in the world does that as good as skydiving does. You know, the second you leave that plane, all you're thinking about is that skydiving and it being in that moment. And then it kind of just wipes away all your problems. And so I knew that going hard Monday through Friday and then having the weekends to relax is a lot better than going 70% every day of the week. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on you that. Know, well, that's but the best you must have amazing retention skills, though, because you're talking about so much fucking information getting slammed into your head uh, from both directions now, both in what you're doing for work and what you're doing for entertainment. I mean, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be able to figure out how to scratch my ass during all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully, like right now, uh, it is really busy right now. There's a lot of information. It's it's insane. Like I, I'm just now getting a grasp of how much I still don't know. You know, like sure. I'm still learning how much I still don't know. And um, so it's every day. It's like <laughs> you know, I answer a couple questions, but I I learn 20 more questions that I didn't even know right. that there were questions to. So it's very busy now, and thankfully I live really close to Skydive Suffolk now, so I'm able to, instead of spending the whole weekend at the DZ, I can spend a day or a half day, so it's good enough now that I can, say, spend Saturday at the DZ, and then Sunday I go into work and study all day, and that's kind of my, my normal thing now. Because okay. I only spent Saturdays at the DZ instead of the whole weekend. Well, with what you've got going on, I can imagine. Now, what's your, what's your instruction ratings? What do you hold? Uh, so right now I'm only a TI. Um, I have a few hundred tandem jumps. Uh, I've been wanting to do AFFI for a few years, but I've never been able to take like the week off to do it. Sure. Uh, I know Rob Laidlaw down in Deland has been sending me invites for the last like four years to go <laughs> to an AFFI course, and him and I have spoken mul multiple times, but I just haven't been able to take the time off to do it, unfortunately. Um, well, yeah, just, just tandems and I coach. I, I prefer like coaching. I love just teaching people. I love teaching in general. So. Nice. Now, do you find that, uh, I mean, you've been in the military for some time now uh, and it's such a regimented way to learn things. Do you find that that bleeds across into your coaching? I, I definitely do. Um, mainly, I mean, I, I like I said, I love instructing and um, I really like the way the military does things and I, I really like instructing in the military. Um, and so I think I do kind of take that same approach when I'm coaching, which has its, you know, positives and negatives because a lot of civilians aren't used to <laughs> being trained like that. Right. Right. And so it's, you kind of have to remind yourself to tone it back a little bit and, you know, especially not everyone takes this as seriously as you might. Right. Right. And like me, I, I take every jump very seriously. I like to 
always learn something on every jump and being able to take learning points from every jump I do, just like I would a flight. And sure. I, you know, I learned pretty early on that not every skydiver is like that. Not every skydiver is like that all the time. No, uh, no, not at all. You know, it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm free and loose with my my training style, even as an AFF instructor. I'm a little bit more so with tandems. But as an AFF, I was relatively regimented, but still pretty loose around the edges compared to a military mentality. But my favorite students out of all the students as far as ease as an instructor were military guys. They're fucking great, man. You tell them what to do and they don't... They don't know the word why. Why doesn't fucking exist in their vocabulary. I don't even think that letter exists in their alphabet. Fucking why doesn't exist. You just tell them and they do it. And it's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, I feel that. I, I do like bringing my friends from you know from work and getting them into jumping. Well, and, especially uh, if you're working with a bunch of pilots. I mean, they uh, fall into it pretty easily. No pun intended. Yeah, I get to when I'm teaching their ground school, I get to skip how to do a PLF and how to fly a pattern. I just say downwind base final. Any questions? Cool. Continue. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I mean it's just a different wing. It's got different flight characteristics, but pilots tend to figure that stuff out relatively quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, still in skydiving, being that you spend all your time flying or learning to fly these incredible beasts what kind of canopy are you into i mean i picture you on this itty bitty little micro mini but you say 1800 jumps and you're a pretty down-to-earth guy mentally so i'm thinking you're probably not flying anything too stupid yeah i uh i was actually pretty conservative with my uh approach to canopy flight um mainly because like you know i don't want to hurt myself right and i like to think that once my parachute is open and it's flying it's I'm, I'm safe, right? <laughs> I don't want to necessarily reintroduce a whole lot of risk to my jump just to get to the ground. Um, so I don't do any huge swoops. I'll do 90s and sometimes I'll do 270s if, if the mood is right and there's no one near me in the sky. But I'm, I'm kind of a pansy when it comes to that. <laughs> I so have no, a, uh, yeah, I was just a gonna, Combilo, a Combilo 103 okay. and just purchased a, um, a Valkyrie 96. Um, so my goal is to kind of dial in my 270 a little bit better on my comp before I hop over to my Val- Valkyrie. So, right. um, yeah, my, I actually don't even have the Valkyrie in my possession. I told my, my best friend to hold on to it and he's been holding on to it for a few months now Nice, because I don't want to be tempted to hook it up. I really want to, I'm serious <laughs> when I say I need to, I need to dial in my 270. Well, absolutely, man. Well, what's, uh, what's your weight out the door? What are you loading those things at? Um, what would I be at? Like a 2.3 or so? Okay. So basically what the canopy is designed for. Yeah. So I, I, I exit, I exit like a two, two thirty five maybe. Okay. So you're a little bit, well, no, I say you and I are probably about the same weight. So yeah. And yeah, I, two fifteen, two ten, two fifteen. Okay. Yeah. And I was super, super conservative when it came to canopies. I didn't get on anything that would have been considered a high performance canopy until I had over a thousand jumps uh, and yeah. probably another thousand before I was on anything that uh, you could by today's standard swoop. Um, yeah, and, sure. you know, and I was very happy to take it very, very mellow. And I always, I still do. I've got, you know, a ton of friends that are amazing canopy pilots and I'm just blown away with what they can do. But I found that I have no desire to do what they do because I don't want to break all the bones that they broke, <laughs> you know, or, For sure. 
you know, I had uh, Cornelia Mihai, who is, you know, multiple record holder and, and medalist, uh, was trying to teach me how to do, I think she was trying to teach me 450s, because uh, I usually <laughs> just do a 270 as well. And I got halfway around one 450, bailed on the turn, landed in the middle of nowhere, and she comes up to me, she's like, what happened? I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like, nope <laughs> nobody's ever going to be impressed with my swooping and that shit just made me dizzy more power to you guys you're badasses yeah uh, i strongly believe in there's a big difference between what you can fly and what you should be flying oh yeah oh yeah um, I, I always always made sure that you know if i if i can't fly a canopy downwind unconscious through someone's backyard avoiding obst- obstacles and exactly don't belong- Exactly. I uh, I ended up taking a, about six months off when I was flying, just really getting into flying jumpers. And then I signed a buddy of mine off to fly the little 182 that we had at the drop zone. And my sign off for him was me jumping out. So he's on his own. And uh, I bail out and, and uh, hadn't jumped my, my Velo 103 in probably six months. I hooked the damn thing like I'd been on it last Tuesday, stayed on the rears too long, stalled him out and broke my tailbone. Um, yeah. So I'm sitting there with a broken tailbone going, Oh, so yeah, those guys I keep giving shit to because they're not current. Yeah, that would I guess that would be me. Oops, and it was a, it was a great lesson learned, you know. I mean, uh, yeah. and this was after I shit. I think I probably had eight thousand jumps at the time, and I'm like, oh, okay, you can be an idiot no matter how many jumps you've got. You should probably stay safe, you know. So handing that yeah. handing that other canopy off to your friend is a damn good thing. That says a whole lot. So now (laughs) with skydiving, what's your, uh, for fun, what's your jump of pleasure? What's, what's your go-to for you want to just go out and have fun? I mean, in general free fly, I pretty much only do free fly. Um, I'll hop on the occasional belly, especially if it's like a big way or something. But I, um, I do love doing like, uh, sequentials and I like really, really wild 3d angle jumps, big old transitions and kind of jumps that do everything where you maybe go vertical, turn some points, start moving, stop, you know, re-meet up, flip, flip a pancake or something, you know, just like wild all over the place type jumps. Nice, nice. Just get out and have a little bit of fun. Now, yeah. I was saying at the beginning of the podcast that I'm jealous because I've been grounded for so long with uh, obviously even when this airs, I'm sure we'll all still be sitting around with the coronavirus going around, uh, but you've mm-hmm. not been grounded. You've still been able to get up in the air. So I kind of fucking hate you just a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> dude, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty fortunate. Yeah, yeah. And so the flying that you've been doing, uh, in fact, the reason that I initially hit you up to come on the podcast is you had posted a, a social media video of you flying in formation in the 18s. Mm-hmm. That's just got to be so fucking cool. I'm, it definitely is. Um, like, I guess you don't really think about while you're doing it, right? And that's one thing I love about the, like, when someone in the flight takes a picture or something, because it's something I can look back on and I can remember, like, yeah. That's pretty cool. Sure. Like in, in hindsight, because while you're doing it, you know, it's very busy. And especially as a student, there's each flight, there's so much new stuff that I'm doing that I'm just, you know, I'm never comfortable. Right. And in general, you just, you know, it, it takes a long time, I guess, before you're comfortable doing the things that we do. And, um, now, so you're so super focused and stressed out. It's stressful. Would and you so mentally, you would you mentally equate it to like when you're learning how to skydive when, you know, I mean, obviously uh, skydiving is a little bit more in the moment, uh, but mm-hmm. is this just kind of a stretched out version of that for you when you're flying these things? Um, honestly, I'd say like, I mean, obviously this is way, way harder, but I always found skydiving to be quite relaxing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, even when I was first learning, like I'd say by the time I got my A license, right, I feel like most of the learning is happening kind of just subconsciously. Sure. And, you know, the only time I feel like it's really conscious learning is like in the tunnel. Um, but in, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I can't really compare the two. Okay, <laughs> no, me, fair enough. Skydiving is very relaxing, even at its most, <laughs> even at, at, you know, most insane if I'm on like a, a big way or something like that, or a really hard jump where I'm the shittiest skydiver on the jump. And I'm like, please don't fuck this up. Please don't fuck this up. Right. Then I'm, I'm, it's nowhere near stressful. <laughs> Which so. uh, most people will be very happy to hear that an F 18 pilot says that skydiving is mellow. It would be different if someone that said they were a baker said that skydiving was mellow. Cause there's a lot of people <laughs> that skydiving, it freaks them the fuck out, but they're muscling through and they're learning to, you know, cope with the stress and cope with the fear. Cause for most yeah. people that's as intense as it gets. I mean, I, there's just not much more beyond skydiving for a civilian that can go out and do something that intense. So I want to hear an F-18 pilot say skydiving is relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's what I want to hear. Now, have you thought about, you, you, you mentioned tunnel. Do you get a bunch of time to get in the tunnel? Yeah. So uh, when I was living in Mississippi, that's when I started, I was flying the T-45 out there and that's when I started doing tunnel. And I would take like a week of leave and go up to Utah to uh, Ogden and fly with all those guys. Um, and they're the really the ones who got me started and, you know, got me to where I'm at now. Uh, so I did, I did about three, maybe four trips up there, flew a total of like, you know, 12, 15 hours. And then now I live about a block away from my fly Virginia beach. Oh, nice. And my roommate is an instructor. Uh, so that helps out. But I, um, I go to the tunnel all the time now. Virginia nice. beach is uh, Ray Kubiak's out there, isn't he? He is, yes. Oh, you need to, when you see Ray, you need to go up to Ray and you need to give him a big kiss on the mouth if you've got the balls or on the cheek if you don't uh, and tell him Princess told him to say hello. I actually, oh, I, got the balls, I so. to please, watch out. big smack right on the mouth. And I say this every time he comes up on the podcast because it's my only bragging rights that I have in the tunnel. I taught Ray Kubiak how to fly in the tunnel. Oh, shit. Yes. Yes, he was the worst fucking student even, I've ever had. He was. He I was. Didn't think that, that was a thing. I thought like he was just born he was that badass. Born, but, no, being the tunnel tunnel god he is now. No man, time. he. Ah. Uh, I was a tunnel instructor in Las Vegas. That's how I got my start in the sport. And he <laughs> he came and I think he was going to work the front desk, but he ended up uh, getting a gig uh, as an instructor. But you know, Ray's like six foot four, six foot five. He's skinny as hell and he had the worst body position so literally for the first week he was learning how to fly he would just track face first into the wall nice yes and eventually of course he got it and then became the tunnel god that he is but i get bragging rights and i get to say that i was one of the crew that taught him how to fly in the tunnel that's pretty awesome (laughs) yeah well and the kid's just fantastic and talk about a big heart so yeah if you've got virginia beach as a tunnel fucking hell man you you've your life is paved with gold (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm definitely very very happy that i live here i i couldn't be happier now um as you're moving forward with your training you say you've it's about a year total what comes next i mean um you you I, again i don't know how it works but you're mm-hmm. now a, a signed off f-18 pilot where do you go from there in your career yeah so uh you go to the fleet you go to a fleet squadron um and that's you know a three to four year tour where you're that's where, you know, you're doing the deployments and the workups and all that fun stuff. 
You looking so I will find out late this summer what squadron I go to. You looking forward to uh, ship life? Um, <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as much as as much as anyone, like it's it's one of those things. I know it's going to happen, and I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe sometimes the most fun I ever want to have again. Right. Type thing. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to finally going out and doing you know doing the thing and sure. what I've been kind of training for. For years. Well, so. and I mean, let's face it, you're you're training to become what, and I don't care what kind of pilot you are, don't lie and tell me you haven't daydreamed about flying F-18s, because fuck you, you have, I certainly have as well. You're getting to do what most of us would only daydream. I mean, what is it, 0.1% of every person that's ever touched a fucking plane is going to get to fly an F-18. So <laughs> how cool is that? I don't, I don't know the percentages, but yeah, and I like to keep that perspective. Like I'm, I'm very fortunate to, um, that, you know, the path I took to get here got me here. Um, I'm fortunate that it, it worked out and I'm very grateful for that. Sure. And, um, I, I remind myself of that all the time that, um, I'm you know, I'm very happy to be where I am and I worked really hard for a long time and sure. it's, it's nice to see it pay off. And, um, I'm just, I'm fortunate to be in the squadron I'm in and, be doing what I'm doing. Which is awesome. I mean, I've said it many, many times about even my gig flying jumpers into Twin Otters is I, I work in an office where I obsessively take pictures out the window of the same mm-hmm. view I'm over every day just because something's a little bit cooler or a prettier color. And who the fuck has offices that they can't stay, t- stop taking pictures out the window? You know, I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pilots and skydivers are kind of the only groups, you know, and, and so I consider myself extremely fortunate that I get to do that. That kind of thing because i mean come on now um back to uh, a couple other questions and then i'm going to f- try and drop the jet stuff when you're learning okay. how to land for a carrier are you doing practice landings on land with an actual cable catch and everything so you're doing actual you're doing the landings on the runway and the runway will have a box painted on the side of it typically and that's the, the carrier box mm-hmm. And then next to the runway is the IFLOS, which is the uh, basically the, the lighting system that um, gives us our glide slope indication. So we fly it just like at the boat. Now, there are uh, arresting cables going across the runway, but they're not coincident with the carrier box or anything. They're for, like, no-shit emergencies. Okay. Um, so we don't... We don't like drop the hook when we're doing it at the field. We just... We balance. It's, just, it's literally touch and go. So... You just you're just going around the pattern, doing touch and goes because it's the exact same mechanics as how it will be at the boat. Like whether you have the hook down or up, it doesn't really matter. So when you when you go to the boat, um, the second you touch down, you slam mill power and you take off again. Now if your hook is down and it catches the wire, then you stay on deck. And then once you feel that deceleration, you'll look up, you'll see the the lineman guy telling you to throttle back, and you throttle back at that point. Um, but you always when you touch the deck, you always plan on going flying again. Sure. So your basic rule of thumb is you slam into the deck with the gas full up because you are just not expecting to catch that wire. Yeah. So the, uh, the deck's actually like a surprise. You're really like looking at all the ball. So yep. you're, you're flying the ball to touchdown and you're staring at that. And, um, you kind of, you have a scan that you go through and the second you touch down, the second you feel that, you know, slam, you just slam the throttle forward. Sure. And, um, you know, if you boltered, meaning you, you missed the wire, then you're airborne again. If you're not, then you're 
stopped. Fucking intense. I mean, I've I've had the privilege of of uh, being working on deck on a carrier and and watching uh, flight operations. And I was uh, working with an F fourteen squadron back in the day, way back in the day, um, and <laughs> watching them slamming into the deck and catching the wire. And every once in a while, having to go around her. One of the coolest visuals that I will never ever get out of my mind was uh, standing up on I think they call it Vulture's Row. So you're up above the flight deck watching night ops and watching an F-14 getting ready to take off and the jet blast deflector, that big wall that comes up behind the plane so you don't melt the guy behind you, is up behind this guy and he's got full power in and there's just flame hitting the jet blast deflector, almost licking the canopy of the jet behind him, which is stage to go the most fucking intense thing you've ever seen and then in you can explain this too and again this is more fanboy bullshit um when the jet takes off it's bright lights and everything's fucking just out of control and then as soon as it's off the deck the thrust just disappears what the hell's going on there the, um the, there's, sorry you're talking the, you're talking about when they're in like blower and they get launched off the boat yeah so they get launched off and you can see the flames and the exhaust and this is night ops obviously um but mm-hmm. as soon as they're just barely away from the deck the whole plane just goes black there's no more flame shooting out the back are they just pulling power back yeah they are they're disengaging the the uh, afterburner jesus christ oh man all right i'm, I'm gonna try and stop <laughs> <laughs> Because these are yeah, all the I questions do. that I had when I was a kid that you never get to ask anybody, you know. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done any night carrier stuff yet. Uh, I will when I go to the boat in the um, in the Rhino. But taking off as a section, you know, at night is is really cool. That's the takeoff is my favorite because lead will go, and then you just see you know the the diamonds forming in the uh, in the exhaust from the afterburner, right? And it's you know like twenty feet long, and it just looks so cool. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, and even going into, you know, going into burner at night, uh, I think last time I did it, I, I had my mirrors and my canopy set in a way that you can really see it. It just lights up, uh, behind that. And, uh, I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> so you do get those moments every once in a while of, holy fuck, I'm doing this. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> uh, everyone, you know, once in a while, maybe when things calm down a little bit, if you, you know, depending on the flight and. Um, sometimes you get a flight maybe for like a currency where you get to just go out and, and, you know, kind of do whatever you want and burn, burn a bag of gas and, um, you can, you know, have fun and, uh, it's, that's it, the place that you're like, okay, this is cool. <laughs> right. It, it sounds to me like it's more like um, what I've considered the more stressful situations I've had in flying where you land and then you reflect once it's on the ground or a really yeah. badass jump that's super intense and you're not really thinking about what's going on. You're just reacting and then you land and go, holy fuck, I can't believe we did that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's how it is. A lot of time you, you land and especially if it was a good flight, you know, you're like, Hell yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> awesome, awesome. That's got to be cool. Now, does the idea of having to land on a carrier in in the dark, is that, that's got to be puckering you up even now. <laughs> it has to be. Tell me it does. Yeah, I mean, cause... All, you, all you hear about is, you know, like I, like I said, I've, I've done day landings, right? And it's, it's not that bad. And you get used to it. Um, and you know, that being said, you know, caveat that with, I haven't done it in like really bad weather or anything. So Oof. I've only done it in... <laughs> very you know nice student conditions right um but yeah all all you hear about is you know the white knuckles you get landing at night um 
So I guess we'll see when I do it for the first time. Oh, it's fucking gotta be, man. It's, I mean, I'm total Team Navy, uh, not just from my past experience, but I'm of the Top Gun generation. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, I, I'm just enamored with this whole, you know, the lore that's behind it all. But to hear the details and to find out that that's actually pretty right on, <laughs> it's fucking. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I can't really speak much to how uh, on it is, but because uh, I, I you know, haven't really experienced much of it but um dude i'm stoked I'm for you just for everything for everything that you've got coming for everything that's still you know ahead of you i'm so fucking stoked <laughs> and <laughs> well my, i appreciate it man my palms are sweating a little bit though just thinking about that shit so back <laughs> off the jets and, and back to skydiving what's what's next in skydiving because if you not if when you are assigned a squadron potentially you're going to be out on cruise for shit six months at a time so there's not going to be a lot of jumping involved in there but do you see your skydiving career going further or is it just chuck drogues and, and fun jump when you can yeah well first off chuck and drogues it's uh I don't. I don't do that that much. I'm mostly a fun jumper. Okay. I always. I always do at least two jumps per per tandem. So that way, the money I make doing tandems at never more than break. I break even, right? Nice. So, um, because I am, I, I am a, a fun jumper through and through. <laughs> well, and but, you. Um, I think we talked about this last time. You you have a, something that most people don't have, which is the luxury of a, a job that pays for everything else that you need. And skydiving is your escape from that. So skydiving isn't exactly. income for you. Yeah, yeah. So I mostly do tandems when I'm like <laughs> bored and maybe there's like cute girl. You know, not, not a lot of jumps going on that I I want to get on or something. And I'll just throw drugs instead. Awesome. Like, hey, instead of sitting around, I may as well make money, right? Um, but as far as progression from here on out um i i love being able to go to camps and and you know work up to the records and everything like that but where my job is and where i am right now i can't take the time off i can't travel and go to these things so really right now all i can do is continue to like hone my skills in the tunnel and in the sky and um you know go to go to as many camps as i can possibly manage but over the next few years it'll probably continue to be difficult so i think by the time i'm on my shore tour um where i'm you know i'm able to take leave and i'm kind of um sitting in one spot potentially depending on where i go i think that's when i'll be able to be a little more active and um in like records and and competitions and stuff like that so competing is something competing is something you'd like to be able to do eventually yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm a pretty competitive person. I just ha- unfortunately haven't had the opportunity to do it in skydiving yet. Um, but now that I finally live next to a tunnel where I can fly regularly, um, I think that's going to help. Which is so. awesome. Now, I mean, so once you're up and running in your – you can be assigned to any squadron anywhere in the Navy. So, I mean, yeah. you never have – it. you don't have any idea where you could end up. Exactly. So my, I hope to stay here in Virginia Beach, but I could get sent to Lemoore, California, or Japan. What? I mean, Lemoore probably would suck really bad. <laughs> I know Lemoore. Yeah. I mean, at least there's skydiving, you know, nearby, like within a few hours, there's yep. a few drop zones. And, you know, I, I like California drop zones. But yeah, I'd, I'd rather stay here for sure. Are there no more uh, um, squadrons floating out of uh, um uh, well, actually, I suppose they would still be out of uh, uh, out of San Diego, but you'd be attached to a base that's inland. So that's uh, San Diego is is Marines. It's all Marines. So the whole fucking yeah. city's now Marines. Fuckers. 
Well, as far as ape fighter aviation goes, like um, like well, F eighteen. Yeah, because they stole they stole Top Gun. They stole Miramar. They stole Miramar. Yeah. Well, Top Gun. Actually, we talked about that last time too. Top Gun is still a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's so, a it's a school. So and it's so and it's basically just a school to advance whatever skills you guys already are learning. It's just kind of a little bit what more intense. Um, so like people get sent there and like I said, I can't really speak as, as an authority on the subject or anything, but, um, they, they're the ones who like put out the, the most recent like recommendations on how we do things and, and, you know, the change and the advancements and and tactics and everything. Um, so they, they kind of train to that and they, I guess, keep the fleet like standardized to that. Nice. Nice. Standard. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll just have to go watch the new Top Gun movie because clearly that's going to be what it's like. (laughs) <laughs> exactly because the, the fucking first one was so bang on perfect uh we won't even go into that so um as as we get towards the end of the podcast i always ask a few questions but i have an extra one for you uh, i always ask people and because you're a coach and a tandem instructor you can answer this someone is just getting into the sport uh what should they be thinking what should their mentality be walking into skydiving not knowing what direction they want to go just that they're enjoying jumping but they want to stay safe um what would you say for someone that maybe is they've been doing the same thing for a long time they're kind of burned out and and just not feeling it that much anymore and what do you say to the person that's listening to the podcast going i fucking want to fly f-18s and i'm young enough and smart enough how do i get there so uh for your first question someone first getting into the sport um i think obviously it's a steep learning curve and i think more important than your skills in the sky is the approach you take to to um to safety and your progression so biggest thing is you know have big eyes big ears small mouth right so absorb as much as you can um ask questions ask why and and that's that's one thing that i try to i guess teach people in the sport is not only what we do but also tell them why because there's certain things that I feel like most skydivers really lack in, in knowledge is really understanding why we do certain things the way we do. Sure. And having that inherent understanding, I think, is going to make make you just a, a safer skydiver. And uh, being able to apply that knowledge to maybe new scenarios, um, I think, is going to be it's going to like I said, just make you safer. Sure. And so listening, listening to your instructors and and more experienced flyers and really just listening to skydivers talk to each other. Cause I mean, I remember being a hundred jump wonder listening to advanced canopy pilots and listening to advanced free flyers and, and guys organizing at camps and just kind of standing close and listening and trying to get as much of that information as possible. Um, because it's out there and it's free, you know, you don't always have to pay for it. And uh, it's only going to make you a better skydiver. Sure. So. That's actually one of the compliments that I've gotten about this podcast is people have tuned in and listened to some of the world's best. I've been privileged to have some amazing jumpers on. Um, and uh, people are blown away by the humility and their willingness to admit to mistakes and learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of the the catalyst for this podcast in the first place was it's like overhearing a bonfire chat. And this is the real conversation about the real 
sport and what people are really thinking and and you know not just the bluster and the the makeup we put on the sport you know for those that don't know about it uh so yeah yeah it's it's i think it's extremely important to be able to just kind of listen in and hear what the people that have been doing it for a while have to say good or bad you know and i'd like to think people are generally pretty smart and they can tell the difference between someone giving good information and just talking out their ass Exactly. And, and that's, a you know, I guess leads me to my next point is obviously it's very important in the sport to, you know, be humble and be willing to admit when you're wrong or if you do something unsafe or if you just don't know something. Sure. You know, go through experience, Scott Evers, too. Ask questions because I, I, I see, um, I see, you know, experienced flyers doing stuff that um, I can, you know, any one of us can easily explain why it's not the best idea. Sure. And um, so also don't be scared to call people out. Right. So. Right. Sometimes I'll sit in the loading area and I'll hear someone talking about their jump and I'm just like, is no one else going to say anything? Why? Um, <laughs> this <laughs> right. isn't a good idea, right? And sometimes it kind of sucks being that fun police or something. But um, overall, you know, I, I want to keep people alive. So be willing to admit when you're wrong. Be willing to learn. Like I said, I love being on skydives where I'm the shittiest skydiver and going to camps where I, you know, I have a lot to learn. Um, because all of us ha- always have something new to learn. Sure. Well, yeah. and the other um, really uh, almost envious uh, point to that position is uh, I enjoy knowing that I'm not the best on a skydive. In fact, I enjoy knowing that I suck at something because it, A, takes the pressure off, and it, B, it allows me to learn without fear of embarrassment or this or that. I already know I'm not the best. So I get to just learn and just soak it up, which is awesome. Well, my philosophy is always be the second worst skydiver on <laughs> Because if you if you're the second worst, you can count on the worst skydiver to dick it up for everybody, right? And then they're the ones who aren't going to be invited to the next jump, but you will. So <laughs> and you will always learn have someone slightly shittier. So if someone on the jump, like the complex sequential or something. Someone's on the jump is going to mess it up. It's not going to be you, or it'll be you if that person doesn't do it first. Right. So you just got to hope that that person does it first. <laughs> it's not. Hey, believe me, I'm right there with you. I think that's fucking yeah. great mentality. Now you don't strike until you make it philosophy. You don't strike me as the type of person that suffers burnout. So my second question is probably bullshit for you. <laughs> um, yeah. So the burnout thing, I, I feel like I don't have a great answer because I don't think there's a really a universal answer to it because you see people in their sport for so many different reasons and are motivated by so many different things. Um, you know, some people the answer might be, Hey, put down the instructor pack for a little bit and go fun jump or some, you know, where some people just don't like fun jumping. So, or try, you know, dabble in a different, um, in a different, uh, discipline, but I don't, I don't really know. I don't have an answer to it for me, <laughs> for me, not staying, not burnt out is, um, is getting to travel, meet new people and, and, uh, and learn. I'm, I think I'm mostly motivated to learn, get, you know, hone my skills and get better in the sport. So by going to camps, or flying with like world-class flyers, that's what keeps me motivated. When I have something to like prove to someone who is way better than me that, hey, I belong on this jump and I want to learn from you and I want to get better, um, that's what keeps me going. Nice. That's awesome. And that's that's a a pretty common answer that I get from a lot of people is if you're burned out on what you're doing, try something new. Try something that you're not good at uh, and Mm -hmm. see if it challenges you. See if you get some of that fire back. Uh, For me, it was walking away from jumping for a living, taking a big long break and then coming back as a reborn fun jumper and remembering Mm -hmm. why I started doing it in the first place. 
Definitely. So now um, the last question uh, for anybody that's listening and they want to take the aviation path that led you to where you are, what are some key things you can think of that, that say a, a 16 or an 18 or a 20 year old guy that wants to a guy or girl that wants to do this needs to be thinking as they move forward? So um, a couple things, the, so whether you're in high school or college or anything, it, I get the question a lot like, Hey, do you have to study like a STEM degree, right? Like you have to be an engineer or physics or math or something. And I'm going to, and definitely not. That's, um, that's not the case, right? I know guys who've studied history and English and music and all over the place. Um, now will a STEM degree help you (laughs) probably uh, more than hurt you, right? But I think what's more important is that you, um, you study something that you are into something that you can excel in because it's really important to not half-ass anything you're doing and, just whatever you're doing, take seriously and just try to you know do the best you can. Because if you're not used to kind of operating at a level where you're always just doing your best, right, and trying to be better than you were the day before, mm. then it's going to be it's going to be really hard for you to excel in a um, in a demanding job. So there's that from the education standpoint. Just just do whatever you're going to do. Just do it well. That's that's the big thing. Mm. Uh, and then. Do things that that allow you to excel as a person and as a as a leader. So the big, you know, another big thing that people that the military looks at is not necessarily just like your school transcripts, right? It's um, hey, do you have good leadership background? So sure. have you been like a captain of your sports team, or have you, you know, I don't know, you name it, like anything. You can literally put a spin on anything you do. To make it look like you've taken a leadership role and you, <laughs> you know, you've led a group of people and to accomplish a common goal. Sure. So that's that's an important thing, right? Because as as an officer, you know, if you're a pilot, first thing you are is an officer, right? And you are in charge of people. You're leading people. Uh, so that's a that's a big aspect uh, that they look at in you know the application process, sure. as well as obviously having good test scores and and you know being physically qualified to do it. Sure. Um, but some of the things that are in your control is is your academic background and uh, your leadership background. Now, what the, what should they be aiming for uh, in aviation? You said you got the military to pay for most of your aviation. If you want to walk in and try and be a, a Navy pilot or an Air Force pilot, do you have to have an aviation background or can you go in no. with zero time? Yeah, yeah. I'd say most people do go in with zero time. Wow. Um, yeah, they start from ground zero. Um, the big thing is if – because like me. I came in, you know, hundreds of hours on the civilian side and I know plenty of friends that came in, you know, they're airline pilots and stuff before they joined. And I can tell you one thing is that by the time you get through primary flight training, all that time means nothing. Mm. So if you do have prior time, it definitely can help you at the beginning, right? It can give you that leg up, but you can't treat it like it's going to give you that leg up. You know, you (laughs) have to press the I believe button. You just have to be willing to learn you know, the Navy way or the Air Force way, and um, basically just have the humble approach to acknowledge that you're going to learn a lot regardless of how many, how good of a pilot you think you are and uh, how much you already know. Sure. There's there's going to be a steep learning curve regardless. Yeah. And if you just go into the training like you've never touched an airplane before, it's going to help a lot. And, um, yeah, if you go around walking around thinking your shit don't stink because you have flight training, people are just going to dislike you. <laughs> right, right. So it's it's uh, it's uh, kind of along the lines of a great, you know how to fly a plane. Uh, we don't care. 
<laughs> yeah, really. That's that's how it is. So. Fair enough. Fair. Well, and that's fair. I mean, it's it's uh, the same thing along the lines of going through, say, a, a, an army style uh, paratrooper training, and then trying to step into the skydiving world. Uh, the USPA doesn't give a flying fuck how many military round jumps you've got. It's you yeah. know, it doesn't it it doesn't mix. You you have the mentality, and you know what it feels like to step off of an airplane, which is a great start. But in the big scheme of things, it doesn't mean all that much. Exactly. And yeah, that's a, that's a really good analogy because you might know exactly how, how the skydive feels. You might know how to fly a parachute a little bit. You might understand how, you know, how the rig works, but you still got to go into it with a mentality that you're learning everything from sure. the ground up. Um, slightly, you know, slightly different rigs, slightly different airplanes, slightly different parachutes, different instruction uh, methods. So yeah. Well, I think it's a good analogy. Dude, I'll tell you what, man. I, I wish you nothing but the best in the, the training that you've got going. And then, of course, getting a really good uh, duty station and a good squadron so you end up in a good spot when it's time <laughs> for you to go Thanks. floating around and, and doing cool shit like protecting us. And by the way, if I haven't said it, thank you for your service for sure. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, man. man yeah. Uh, keep on trucking, though. Get out. Make sure you give Ray Kubiak a big fucking kiss for me. Um, I will. Say hello everything. to everybody in Virginia Beach. And uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. I got to, you know, go all fanboy and shit on the, the jet stuff. And I do appreciate you uh, answering all my goofy questions. Yeah, man. Not a problem. Thanks again for inviting me on. It was good talking to you. All right, Joey. You have a great one. You too, buddy. Bye. Awesome, dude. That was perfect. All right, once again, that is another quarantine edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you by a few people. First off, liquidskymask.com. Fucking how cool is this? Liquid Sky Jumpsuits, badass jumpsuit, badass company, badass crew, are putting masks out to try and help people out while we're all going through this weirdness with uh, COVID. So check them out, liquidskymask.com. You buy a mask, they'll donate a mask, all kinds of other cool stuff. Go on there for the amazing jumpsuits. They even do cart suits, all kinds of stuff. Check them out. Also, blueskiesmagazine.com. Blueskiesmag.com is where you're going to go to subscribe to the greatest magazine in the known universe. It's where you're going to send those photos if you want to try and get them printed. You're going to write your articles to send them. You're going to buy the swag. You're going to do all that cool stuff. I mean, come on. It's fucking Blue Skies. As for me, I am The Fucking Pilot. You can find me on Facebook with The Fucking Pilot. Also, thefuckingpilot.net, which is where you'll find links to this and every other podcast we've done. And you'll find the links to both the books that I've written. That's the Blue Skies Mag's Fucking Pilot book, which is the previously published articles all wrapped up into one. And The Accidental Stripper. Both of them are available in both print and digital form. And uh, I'm about halfway through. I'm getting there. With all this sitting on my ass, there's nothing much else to do. So about halfway through the accidental stripper in audiobook again thanks for coming out for this edition we'll see you soon